evening, everyone. It's so nice to see you. I feel vastly out of practice uh, speaking before these programs, but I'm so happy to be here. I feel funny talking through my mask, but that's life and that's fine. I'm grateful I can still read the clock without my glasses, so that's a plus. Uh, I'm Doug Fullington. Uh, welcome to uh, opening night of Romeo and Juliet. Um, I'll say what I can about the production, a little bit about the history of the score and of the ballet and how we do it here at PNB. I welcome your questions anytime. I love to answer questions, love to have a discussion, so please don't be shy about that. But uh, let's just start with the ballet itself, Romeo and Juliet. Obviously, we all know the story from Shakespeare. Interestingly enough, as far as I know, it was not set as a ballet in the 19th century, which is the century that we get a lot of what we call our classic ballets from, especially the late 19th century, like Swan Lake, which we're going to see in a couple months, The Nutcracker, Sleeping Beauty, Giselle. Romeo just wasn't uh, one, one of those. It wasn't a, a sort of repertory work being set in different places. And in fact, the score that we have now by Prokofiev isn't even 100 years old. It was written in the mid-1930s in the Soviet Union, uh, and it has become the classic Romeo and Juliet score, soundtrack, if you will. When it was written, it was really compared, well, I shouldn't say when it was written, after the fact. It was really thought of as a very cinematic score. And what does that mean? Well, it has themes that recur big sweeping gestures and music that I think sort of immediately has an emotional content to it or, or a feeling of mood or atmosphere. So right away we can tell sort of in a way what we're supposed to feel by watching the scene. And, and of course if we know the story that's all playing into that. Um, and of course opera scores and ballet scores in the 19th century, now this came a little bit later, but they nevertheless were very influential in film scores. Of course, film came right out of, you know, stage performances. But Prokofiev just had a great knack for uh, the big gesture in music. So that's what we really have in the score. And it has become kind of the one um, constant in Romeo and Juliet ballets. There isn't one uh, choreographed version that is the version. Sort of like we think of Sleeping Beauty, it has the Rose Adagio, sort of, most people aren't going to touch that, it's going to stay the same, which is sort of close to how it was when it was first performed. Swan Lake, too, has certain passages of choreography that are just sort of regarded as sacred, and they're going to stay, unless someone's doing a really radical version. We don't really have that with Romeo and Juliet, so we have a number of versions. The early versions in the Soviet Union some of those are still performed. They didn't really take sort of globally. The, the focus there was on really the, the large scale conflict between the Montagues and the Capulets. Did any of you see, I used to see it all the time on TV on like Saturday afternoons growing up, the Bolshoi ballet film of Romeo and Juliet with the ballerina Galina Ulanova. It was like this cast of a million people, you know, on this huge soundstage and they're sort of running around and there's big, fights and battle scenes. Does anybody know that? Is that just an odd child? 
Um, it used to be on, and, and if you ever see that, that's really sort of what those early versions were like. They were very much about the sort of uh, the feud, the conflict between these two houses. Romeo and Juliet were important, but it was much more about the big stage spectacle. Big scenery, lots of costumes, massive cast, and this score that's just, you know, kind of overwhelming, you know, fortissimo, and everyone's playing to beat the band. Um, maybe more recent versions have made the ballet, taken a little more intimate approach with the ballet, and I think that's what we really have here with Jean-Christophe Maillot's production, which I believe, if I'm right, uh, premiered in 1996. Jean-Christophe Maillot was the artistic director of the Monte Carlo Ballet in Monte Carlo. Um, and this production uh, was made in 1996. It's interesting, it sort of became the template for many of his productions. He worked with a design team that would design um, sort of these white, these very stark scenic flats that could be moved around the stage. <gasps> And then the lighting would be used to create the sense of place, whether it's Juliet's bedchamber or the town square or the chapel where Romeo and Juliet are getting married. And you'll see that tonight. How many of you have seen this production before? You've all seen it. Okay, you know what's going on. So it's a lot of white, but it's the lighting and then the costuming that creates the color, that creates the sense of place. And then we see, uh, if you've seen other Mayo ballets like Sandrion, the um, Cinderella story, it's a very similar kind of template for putting the ballet together. But I think with Romeo, if I'm correct, it was really the first time, and the first time it really sort of clicked and everything worked. And it's a ballet that has been performed many times by Monte Carlo Ballet and also acquired, that's the word, the verb we use, acquired by a variety of companies around the world, including PNB. We got this ballet in 2008. But the focus is really on Romeo and Juliet. We don't see so much of the Montagues and Capulets. They're definitely there, and they're roles that are filled by the corps de ballet, but we don't have um, all of the Montague and Capulet parents represented. It's very much focused on this smaller group of younger people and particularly on Romeo and Juliet. Um, and sort of at the same time, there is a very naturalistic feel to the way the choreography is put over. It's a mix of classical ballet steps and kind of more natural movements that we might do if we were trying to express something to someone in gestures without words. And then on the flip side, there are also some very um, stylized or uh, stylized aspects of the plot. For example, when Romeo and Juliet die, those deaths are very stylized and not literal, whereas other portions of the ballet are literal. So there's this juxtaposition of, of uh, sort of overt naturalism, which isn't really natural to classical ballet, which in many ways is quite unnatural, but trying to, trying to look natural to us as an audience and then these very stylized elements as we get down to the kind of nitty-gritty of these two young people dying tragically. Um, I think the ballet also uh, has the dance a little bit more front-loaded in the ballet. We see it earlier on, and then once we get into the intensity of the story, more of the, the gestural acting uh, starts to take over. 
Another really interesting thing about this production is that we see it really as a series of flashbacks through the mind of Friar Lawrence. And maybe, maybe on top of all these other elements, this is what is most unique about the Mayo production. We see uh, Friar Lawrence very um, angst-ridden, very much so at the beginning of the ballet. Prokofiev's written very dissonant music, which I think initially was intended to represent the clashing and the feuding of the two families. Mayo takes that dissonant music and uh, uses it to express the dissonance that Friar Lawrence is feeling in his mind. He's attempting to guide these young people. It ended in tragedy. Did he do the right thing? Did he make the right choices? He's very um, conflicted and disturbed about this. And we're really seeing that the whole story played out as a series of flashbacks in his mind. Um, he also very interestingly is flanked by two what are called acolytes, two men, and that allows for um, really just a lot of visual interest. Um, the two acolytes are used to for partnering. They will partner the friar so he can be lifted up and create sort of larger gestures that read perhaps more um, boldly or strongly to the audience. And we also so sort of meet them in other contexts too. In the wedding of Romeo and Juliet, they hold a strip of fabric in which they form the Mobius strip, which I believe represents eternity and symbolizes their eternal love. So um, they're sort of added characters that facilitate some of these visual images that Mayo wants to put across in his choreography and in his staging. When we put on a ballet like this, um, we have representatives from Ballet Monte Carlo that come each time we put it on. With some ballets, the first time you uh, acquire an existing work, you might uh, the choreographer might come or they might send a representative, and then it might, after that first time, it's often just entrusted to us and we'll keep resetting it with our own rehearsal directors and so forth. But with Romeo and Juliet, each time representatives come from uh, the Monte Carlo Ballet to reset, as we call it, we call it setting or staging, resetting the ballet and reteaching, teaching the new casts, bringing uh, casts that are veterans back up to speed with how they are expressing the character. All this to say that uh, Mayo is very, very specific about the movement quality, about the steps, and not even so much about the steps, but the, the uh, sort of intention and feeling behind them in expressing them to the audience. He has a really specific way he would like things done. Reminds me a little bit, it's not the same, but a little bit of what we hear about Jerome Robbins, who's extremely specific. Now, all of his choreography was intended to come, come off as though you just made it up right on the spot, but in reality, you've rehearsed it 85 times, one way in the studio to get it just right. Uh, there's a little kinship there, in, in, I think, in the working, in the working method. So uh, the dancers that you see on stage will have been coached very meticulously by the representatives by the Monte Carlo Ballet. That usually means that we have fewer casts that go on stage in a ballet like this because the amount of rehearsal time that they require for any given dancer in a role is maybe more than you might have in, a, in say, another ballet. So we have a couple of casts 
of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, of course, tonight you're seeing Noelani Pantastico, this role that's very associated with Noelani. She was the first cast here at PMB in 2008. And you may know that shortly after we presented Romeo and Juliet, she left PMB and danced for Ballet Monte Carlo for a number of years and then returned to PMB. Was it in 2016 or so? So it was a good seven, eight years that she was away from the company here and dancing with Ballet Monte Carlo. So she worked very closely with Jean-Christophe Maillot and I think absorbed more of the aesthetic that he is going for and appreciating in his work. So I think definitely you're going to see someone tonight who is a very seasoned performer of this role and of the aesthetic that the choreographer really wishes to be presented on stage. Uh, Romeo is James Yoichi Moore. Uh, James was also the first Romeo in this production at PNB. So uh, you have a veteran cast, but I think because of this practice of continually sending the representatives over to work with the dancers, there will be a really fresh feeling to it. Um, other dancers are new to the roles. You know, we've had a lot of, we've had quite a bit of overturn, uh, turnover in the company throughout this COVID period of time. And I know the dancers are excited to take on some of these uh, new roles that you'll see them in tonight. Um, you may also know that Noelani is retiring after this run. I don't know if you all knew that, but it's after a week from Sunday will be her final show with the company. She's been with the company for, well, a span of 25 years. She had her hiatus in Monte Carlo, but she'll be retiring. So just these Romeo and Juliet shows left to see Noelani. So very bittersweet. She's going to go to uh, teach full-time on the faculty uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania at the Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet, which is one of the country's foremost ballet training centers. They turn out, uh, consistently turn out just terrific dancers. Noelani trained there, Vita Biasucci trained there, um, and there are many uh, leading dancers around the country that trained at what they call the barn out in rural Pennsylvania in Carlisle. So uh, Nicholas Aid, who used to be in the Corte Ballet here and then was a faculty member at our school, is the executive director of Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet. So we are well represented there. And uh, I know that Noelani is looking forward to uh, this transition and to working with younger students and passing on this wealth of knowledge that she's acquired over her long career. Uh, we will have a post-performance Q&A tonight. It'll be with Peter Bowl and Miles Pirtle. Miles is performing the role of Friar Lawrence, which is a very demanding role. There's a lot to communicate to the audience. And of course, you're coming, you're, Mayo is coming at the story a little bit differently by telling it through the lens of the Friar's sort of state of mind. And so that's a lot for, for the dancer to put over in a wordless in a wordless medium like ballet. So it'll be really interesting to hear from Miles about that. I think I'll stop there for a moment and just ask if there's anything you would like to ask. It can be about Romeo and Juliet, it can be about the company in general, it can be how they're dealing with everything that's going on and we're still getting on stage. Yeah. Yes, the question is when Noelani was dancing at Ballet Monte Carlo, did she dance Juliet? And she did, yes. Uh, they're a company that does have a home season in Monte Carlo, but Monte Carlo isn't a very big place, so much of the company's performance 
performance schedule is on tour, and they would tour globally, uh, all around Europe, Asia, uh, North America. So she has danced this in uh, many places, and and I'm not sure she has is able to count how many times, but it's very many times. So I would think the role feels quite second nature to her. And I would also think that she's probably put a stamp on it of her own. I think that's inevitable, especially in a role that requires acting, that requires uh, natural gestures. What is natural? It's going to be a little bit different for every person. And uh, so I'm sure that she has contributed to the longevity and development of this role. Which, which is another reason it's very exciting to see her perform as someone who is so well-versed in, in what the role is. Yeah, thank you. Yes, please. That's a good question. The question is, are we going to get the Mayo's version of Cinderella Sandrion back? I, I don't know of plans for that. We sort of did that as a one-off. I, I believe that we rented the production, so there wasn't a long-term commitment there. We will often do that if we're taking on an existing ballet the first time. We might rent the production for a, from a company that has it. And that means essentially renting the scenic pieces and the costumes. And then if we just, if Peter Boll decides it will stay in the repertory, then we would build our own version, which is what we did with Romeo and Juliet. In fact, we, we did it as a co-production with Atlanta Ballet. Also very common with these large... Uh, bills that require a big financial commitment, it will often be shared between two companies. Ballet was a little bit slow to the uh, table on that one. Opera had been doing it for a long time, but now ballet is doing it, so it's good. Yeah, they're a necessity, but it's also a positive. Uh, long and short, I'm not sure. Yeah, we've only done it the one time. Okay, thank you. I will pass it on. Great, yeah. Great, thank you. Anybody else with a question? Yes, please. Is there any part in Romeo and Juliet, Oh, yes. Is there a part that I like? I love Lady Capulet when she finds out Tibble's dead. It's very, uh, the music is wonderful. It's very rhythmic. It's, uh, it's very public, a uh, public display of mourning. Uh, she lets her hair down. I mean, you've seen it. Uh, and it's just very exciting. Elle uh, Macy is dancing, am I right? Yes, is dancing the role of Lady Capulet tonight. I just love that. I also have very fond memories of Lindsay Deck dancing this, and Mayo loved her, and he would sit in the wings and videotape her on his phone so he would have a reference of her movement quality because it was really great. But I'm sure Elle will also be great. So I do look forward to that. And I also find the two uh, acolytes very interesting. They're sort of this anonymous kind of facilitating role in the in the choreography, but a lot is asked of them. And they're sort of, they should sort of be almost unseen because you really want to see the friar or you want to see Julia, and yet they're really there doing the heavy lifting, literally. And uh, I admire that a lot. Uh, from from the two men that uh, perform that, those roles. Did any of you come to Nutcracker this year? Not to change the subject. Oh, you did. Okay. Well, Bon, thank you for coming. But I just wanted to say, uh, I'm so, even though I work here, I think I can say it. I'm so proud of PMB. We 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 were able to do a complete run of Nutcracker, and the Seattle audience was incredibly supportive. 
and it was a real boon to the company, not just artistically, but also financially too. So, uh, you know, we're in touch with a lot of other large companies around the country. Nutcracker, as you know, is bread and butter for ballet companies, particularly in North America. Was, you know, these have been really difficult years, but we were so pleased to be able to present a full run. We did have uh, two casts of students from the school. I know it was very, very meaningful to them. So I just sort of throw that in because we just came off Nutcracker and uh, so pleased to be able to do that. And for the orchestra too, the orchestra had not had a service, a service, a service call, uh, you know, all together since we did Cinderella in February of 20. So for the orchestra to have that work was also very meaningful to all of those artists. So uh, thank you for supporting. And uh, now, you know, we're heading right into the rest of the season, mixed bills and also Swan Lake. Yes, please. Um, the very first time I saw Noelani was Luigi Frutti, and she was, she was in the core, and it was an incandescent performance then. Um, and I wondered, we don't seem to see Frutti do it very often, but we're going to bring it back anytime soon. A couple of things in this, and thank you. And I remember Noelani's debut as Princess Aurora in Sleeping Beauty. It was, it was brilliant. It was a real breakthrough performance that would have been uh, under Kent Stoll and Francie Russell, casting her as a very young uh, Princess Aurora, like you said, coming right out of the Court of Valley. Yes, I know that Sleeping Beauty will be back. There's a little bit of a, it's been on hiatus in the rep because the old production that we had, the sets and the costumes, had really been thoroughly used. And we did sell it with the, in anticipation of building a new one, and then the pandemic happened. So those plans have been stalled. But there's definitely, as far as I know, a plan for Sleeping Beauty to return to the repertory, likely in a newly built and newly designed production. So I hope that will happen. It's one of the, as you know, it's one of the expensive ones. There's lots of people, which means lots of costumes. Uh, lots of scenery because there are many scenes in different locales that have to be uh, represented. But uh, as far as I know, it's on Peter Bowles priority list and hopefully we will be seeing it. It's definitely, you know, like Odette O'Deal in Swan Lake, the role of Aurora is one of those sort of pinnacle roles that requires a lot of the dancer and allows the dancer to show a high level of accomplishment in a variety of sort of styles and areas. Yeah. Anybody else with a question? Yes, please. This is minor, but I was just wondering why Juliet is spelled Thank you. Yes, why is Juliet spelled different ways? The French spelling is used just for the title of this ballet, but in the list of characters and in the synopsis, as far as I know, the English spellings are used. So that, that's the reason. It's essentially English spelling all the way except for the sort of stylized, if you will, title, which is in French. We've had many conversations about that here over the years. So thanks for asking. Yes, please. I think because it was first made in Monte Carlo by Mayo, and so they 
they uh, have it in French, just like his Cinderella is Cendrillon, and uh, his Swan Lake is Lock, French for lake. And uh, so they use the French titles there. And in their own programs, if I'm correct, they have then French and then English. They have sort of two, two languages represented in their program. Yes, please. Yes, the question is, did Prokofiev write this for Romeo and Juliet? He did. And in fact, the structure of the ballet is similar to these 19th century ballets, which are made up of short numbers, a string of, <clears throat> excuse me, short numbers. You might have 45 numbers in a ballet. You know, this is an opening action scene, and then we have a dance, and the dance might have several parts, and then another action scene. And it's usually number one, number two, number three, and so forth. And uh, in that sense, it's similar to film music as well. If you film, in film music, those numbers are called cues. And there, as we know in film, sometimes there are silent moments, but each cue is a, is a new number. This is sort of, it was in the 30s, it would have been considered an old-fashioned way of putting a ballet together. But, um, you know, the fact that he was able to write these recurring themes that come back these recurring melodies, that helps give uh, coherency and consistency to an entire score, even though it's made up of, sh of these discrete, shorter numbers. So I think he sort, of, he sort of bridged that gap between an old structure and a new way of approaching uh, you know, the totality of a score. How, yes? How different is the score? Um, that's a good question. I, I think it's pretty close, boy, I say this with hesitancy, pretty close to the original order, but I am not really well versed in the original order of Romeo and Juliet, but of course it follows the story and there is a certain order in which things happen, of course, in the story, there has to be. So from what I know, it's, it's, it follows the original order pretty well. It doesn't always use the music in the same way that it was intended. For example, there's a dance accompanied by mandolins. It's great, you know, little strummed mandolins. They sound terrific. And uh, that was intended as dance music. In Mayo's production, it accompanies a puppet show which foreshadows the death of Mercutio and then the death of Tybalt. So I think the music occurs where it should in the score, but it's used for a slightly different purpose, if you get my meaning. Yeah. So. Of course, the orchestra is thrilled to play it. It's a, it's a gorgeous score. I love Prokofiev. We have, of course, Romeo and Juliet. We have Cinderella. Prodigal Son from 1929 is an incredible score. Uh, the Violin Concerto is part of Opus 19, The Dreamer, that we've danced with choreography by Jerome Robbins. So we have quite a bit of Prokofiev. Uh, in our repertory, and uh, he has a very, uh, it's a very distinctive style, it's the way he uses his harmonies, it sounds very general, but there's just that Prokofiev sound, and we really get it in full in Romeo, and it is definitely his uh, most famous uh, score, and uh, I think for good reason. 
It is 7.01, so I'm going to let you go. Curtain up is at 7.30. If you would like to stay after, remember we have the Q&A here with Peter Bowl and with Miles Pearl, who's Friar Lawrence tonight. Thank you so much for being here and for supporting PNB. I hope you have a good night.